This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, in this episode of Behind the Memo, Howard sheds some light on themes from his most recent memo. Here he is discussing the illusion of knowledge with Oak Tree senior financial writer Anna Shemansky. So, Howard, your most recent memo is a discussion of macro forecasting, and you've for many years expressed your disregard for macro forecasts. Can you explain why? Anna, I've always felt that most of the time, things like the economy, currencies, commodities, even the markets, continue along a normal long-term path. Most forecasts are extrapolations from the current level or the recent trend. And since most of the time, things like the economy continue along that path, most forecasts are correct extrapolations. The problem is that everybody extrapolates. So an expectation of extrapolation is built into security prices. And when the extrapolation turns out to be the case and the trend continues, the markets don't react because the expectation was already in the market prices. That's most of the time. Once in a while, there is a dramatic change, a divergence from the trend or from the recent levels, if it's things like currency rates, commodity prices, and so forth. But usually, no one predicts it because they're busy predicting extrapolation. So those forecasts are potentially very valuable since the market does not anticipate those changes. It's not built into security prices. When it happens, it has a strong market impact. However, the divergences don't happen very often. So most forecasts of divergence are wrong. So if you add it up, we have extrapolation forecasts, which are usually right, but rarely profitable, and forecasts of divergence, which are potentially profitable, but rarely made and rarely made correctly. And if you put those two things together, in my opinion, the logical conclusion is that most forecasts are not valuable and do not produce profitability. In this memo, you really dive into why it's so difficult to create one of those helpful macro forecasts. So can you explain a little bit about why it is just so challenging to create helpful macro forecasts? Sure. Think about the economy. There are 330 million Americans, probably close to 300 million of them are participants in the economy as buyers, sellers, consumers, producers, intermediaries, and oftentimes more than one of those things. So you have to predict the behavior of all those people without being able to talk to them, et cetera. So you have to make assumptions about their behavior, usually extrapolating from the past. And the 330 million Americans interact with other people all around the world, producers, consumers, and intermediaries in other countries. So obviously there are billions of interactions or nodes that have to be anticipated. So people make simplifying assumptions, but anytime you make an assumption, you introduce the possibility of error. So that's what I call in the memo, the machine. That's the machine that produces the forecast is a model 
of all those millions of interactions or processes or relationships. Then there's the matter of inputs. Every model requires inputs. So you have to input what you think is going to happen. You have to input, for example, spending. You have to put in assumptions about what incomes will be. People will respond to fads and fancies and uh, changing trends and appetites and so forth. So you have to put in assumptions about these things. And there are thousands of things that you have to consider, thousands of inputs required for the model. They may be valid or they may be invalid. One of the first things I learned about models is G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. If the assumptions that you put in aren't solid, the result of the model is unlikely to be valid. That's number two, large number of uncertain inputs. Number three, and I saved this in the memo for a separate section relating to the inputs, there's randomness, there's chance, there's surprise. Think about the things that have created the macro environment in the last two plus years. You had the pandemic, which nobody predicted. You had the invasion of Ukraine, which until the last minute, people were saying, will he or won't he? We have the Fed and Treasury reaction to the pandemic or the recession introduced by the pandemic, which was to flood the economy with liquidity. And I don't remember reading anybody who fully anticipated the massive extent to which that rescue program would work. And then you had the inflation that largely resulted from A, the rescue program, and B, the supply chain interruptions. It was possible to say we would have inflation. It was hard to quantify the amount of inflation. And of course, even the Fed, which may have underestimated the amount of inflation, famously misestimated by saying that it would be transitory. So think of all these surprising ways in which people were not able to predict the environment that developed. And in the memo, I talk about a lunch I attended, which was very full of inspiration for the memo and for this talk. And the host said, well, you know, we've had so much in the last couple of years that made it hard to predict. Then he reeled off the things that I mentioned. But what do you think now? My reaction was the mere fact that those were the key elements that shaped the environment and that nobody was able to predict them. If I were in the forecasting business, I think that would be enough to make me stop. But the question is, if the forecasts are so easily undone by surprising outcomes, random outcomes, and the complexity, then isn't it a mistake, a folly to engage in macro forecasting? As you say in the memo, people will often say, well, if all of these things hadn't happened, then my forecast would have been perfect. Exactly. Can you explain why that thinking just is pretty illogical? Well, the people who believe in forecasts, they don't want to see their belief blown up. In short, I devote a section of the memo to the mechanisms we employ to rationalize the new evidence within our existing framework. It largely comes from a book that my son Andrew suggested I read this summer called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. Basically, what they say is that we hold views, and when dissonant information arrives, we have to deal with that information. And usually we do so by either harmonizing it with our prior beliefs, or if that can't be accomplished, by ignoring it and rejecting it and explaining it away. This falls under the heading of what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, when the things that you come across are in conflict. How do we deal with that? 
So if someone believes that forecasting can work, makes forecasts, buys on the basis of forecasts, and then sees a memo from me, which says macro forecasts are rarely right, and the ones that are right are not profitable, then they have to get rid of that dissonant information. So they may say things like, people have always invested on the basis of forecasts. Everyone I know uses forecasts. I've always used forecasts. My competitor used forecasts. If I stopped making forecasts, I would not be able to do any business. I wouldn't get any business. And perhaps most importantly, they say that investment consists of positioning your capital to benefit from future events. How can you do that if you don't have a prediction of the future? My answer is that since forecasts are rarely both correct and profitable, you're better off doing without them than relying on ones that are potentially very wrong. And that's really the source of the Mark Twain quote, which I include in the memo. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't true. If it's highly uncertain and views are unlikely to be correct, then it's better to say, I don't know, than it is to boldly say, I know, and act on that expectation and be wrong. And so if you accept this and you say, okay, I don't know, I can't know what's going to happen in the future, then how should an investor move forward? It's a great question, Anna. The answer is not easy. There are no easy answers in investing. Everybody wants to make money. They want to make money really badly. This is a highly competitive arena in which a lot of people are highly motivated. How can it be easy? You have so many bright, intelligent, motivated people trying to make money. It can't be easy for it to be you who makes the money. So there's no rule I can give you which will make you successful on this subject. But what I would say is you should not have strongly held views. You can have an opinion. We all have opinions. Even at Oak Tree, we have opinions. We just don't bet heavily on them. Sometimes we don't bet on them at all. One of the tenets of our investment philosophy is that our investment decisions are not driven by macro forecasts. But it's okay to have an opinion. It's just something very different to assume that your opinion is correct and to invest on that basis. So I would make more neutral assumptions. I would expect most of the time that the future will be like the past. I would accept that many of the ways in which the future is different from the past, you won't be able to foresee. The point is, rather than trying to be right, try to avoid really being wrong. For me, there is a difference. Trying to be right means betting heavily on a forecast where you can either make a lot or lose a lot. Trying not to be wrong is not betting heavily on a forecast in which you forego the opportunity to be an insightful genius and you avoid the possibility of getting involved in a train wreck. And for me, that's the right approach. Yeah, I feel like one of the issues you often have in this industry is, as you said, there are a lot of incredibly intelligent people who have been successful. But as we've seen over and over with things like you know, long-term capital management, sometimes that intelligence can almost get in the way because it makes people think that they can do more than they actually can. Well, again, you're back to what Twain's talked about, the people who are sure they're right and are wrong. That's how you get into big trouble. No sentence that starts with, I don't know, but, or I could be wrong, but, ever got anybody into trouble. The trouble starts with sentences that say, I'm highly confident that, or I'm sure that, or something like that. That's how you get in big trouble. If you bet on those things you're sure about and you're wrong, 
I just think that it's not possible to bet on those kinds of things without facing a substantial possibility that you're wrong. Who are the famous macro investors? Who are the great famous economic forecasters? Where are they? I don't think they exist for the most part. And if not, then doesn't that tell you that this can't be done? There's hedge funds. You look at the last 10 years, as I recall, the S&P's up about, well, let's say 13% a year, and the average hedge fund's up 5% a year. So they've given up about 60% of the return. Let's grant that they get a reduction in volatility, but I don't think it's 60%. So the average hedge fund hasn't done very well in the last 10 years or five. But within hedge funds, there's a subset called macro funds. I assume that the funds nominate themselves for inclusion in that heading. They say, we're a macro fund, then they get into the macro fund index. And I mentioned that I think that the return on the average hedge fund in the last 10 years is 5%. I think that in the average macro fund, it's 2.8. So half again, the average macro fund has a return, which is about a fifth of the return on the S&P 500. And in my opinion, no reduction in volatility is worth giving up 80% of the return. So the point is, I haven't seen a lot of studies on the efficacy of macro forecasts, but in my book, the anecdotal information plus the hedge fund study that I alluded to all tells me that macro forecasting doesn't work. Yeah, it seems like there is so much overwhelming evidence to support exactly what you're saying. But as you also say in the memo, it's so challenging for people to accept that. And it seems like maybe part of it is because it's so scary to accept that there aren't any rules. Yes, people don't like to live in ambiguity. They like certainty. They want somebody to give them an answer which will satisfy their desire for safety. Most people don't like to say, I don't know when asked what the future holds. They don't like to say it to themselves. They don't like to say it to their customers or their peers or maybe their spouses or partners. People don't like to say, I don't know. But I find it very freeing to say, I don't know where I don't know, which is lots of things. When you say, I don't know the way I do, the one thing you know for certain is you're not kidding yourself. You're being honest with yourself and you're being honest with your listener. And I think that that counts for a lot. And I'm very glad to do it when it's true, which is often. It made me think of what you were talking about in your recent memo, I beg to differ, about the need for investors, if they want to be a superior investor, to think differently, act differently, and also be right. But it does seem like foregoing macro forecasting is one way to act very differently from the herd. Sure. And I'm going to make up a number here. If 80% of the people, A, believe in forecasting, and B, make extrapolation forecasts, which are not especially profitable, then it seems to me that rather than bet on extrapolation, don't bet at all. Or maybe look particularly hard for the times when you think that the crowd, the consensus is too optimistic or too pessimistic and take the other side. Spend your time better by studying the micro companies, industries, and securities other than in entirely efficient markets, which do exist. Perhaps sometimes by studying companies, industries, and securities, especially in off-the-beaten-path industries or in small companies or in off-the-beaten-path geographies like the emerging markets, maybe you can get an edge through hard work and skill. If so, that's where you should put your effort, and those are the judgments that you should bet on. So I imagine someone who's reading the memo may think, 
Well, you know, you wrote a memo last year called Thinking About Macro, where you talk about how it's increasingly important for investors to consider macro implications. I'm curious if you could explain the difference between macro forecasting and taking the macro into account when you're investing. Oh, it's another great question, Anna. We've had a saying around Oak Tree, I guess pretty much as long as it's existed, which is we may not know where we're going, but we sure as hell should know where we stand. We may not be able to accurately predict the future, especially in times of unusual divergence, but we should be able to understand the environment we're in today and maybe have an idea what that means for the future. Of course, the most important use for that saying about we should know where we are is we should know when the market is extremely overvalued or extremely undervalued by historical standards. Now, let's say we look at the market. The average post-war price earnings ratio is 16 times for the S&P 500. And let's say today it's 23 times, 50% higher than the historic average. You might say, well, that's really precarious. We're going to bet against stocks. If we're not going to short them, at least we're going to get out of the market or lighten up. That makes total sense judging from where we are today. But I always talk about second level thinking. Second level thinking says that you should not take the obvious consensus position, the common position. So it's not enough to say PE ratios are above average, so stocks are expensive, we're going to get out. You have to say, is there something going on which is going to make that PE ratio non-high? So I think that where we are in the cycle, where the market is relative to normal valuations, tells you what is implied in future behavior. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen, but at least you can make some judgments. And I think those judgments can be helpful. Yeah. So it seems like by doing that, you're focusing more of your energy where you may actually be able to add value because obviously there's only so many hours in the day, no matter how much anyone works. So accepting that you can't know the future can enable you to focus on what actually matters. Exactly. I think that would be my approach and prevents the deleterious effect of heavy reliance on forecasts that can turn out to be wrong. It also seems to be having the humility to know that you don't know and that you can be wrong. So then having that margin of safety as well. Yes. Well, again, investors who are successful get a lot of attention for the bold things that they did that worked. But lots of times, bold things don't work and instead get people into big trouble. Again, humility has the effect of avoiding those. I always say that investing is a two-edged sword. If you're bold and it works, you make a lot. If you're bold and it doesn't work, you lose a lot. And each investor has to decide for himself or herself whether they like that proposition. Heads, you win a ton. Tails, you lose a ton. Do you like that? Or would you rather be an investor who makes a good return almost all the time, never shoots the lights out, but never flops? There's no right or wrong answer to that other than for you. What kind of person are you? What pattern of performance is going to make you happy? And of course, is going to make your clients happy. But this is a fundamental decision that investors have to make. And it is extended to this issue of forecasting. Do you want to bet the ranch on forecasts? Once in a while, you'll be right. A bunch of times, we'll be wrong. Or would you like to say, no, I abstain from that discussion? So do you have any final thoughts about this memo? I had a little fun with it because given my view, 
I've been storing up quotations on the subject of forecasting for literally decades. And I trotted out some of my favorites and used one to head each of the sections in the memo. So in addition to the Twain quote, I've got probably my all-time favorite from Amos Tversky, the late Stanford behaviorist, who said, it's frightening to realize you don't know something, but even more frightening that most people go around acting as if they do. There's a great quote from John Kenneth Galbraith. We have two kinds of forecasters, the ones who don't know and the ones who don't know they don't know. We have Donald Borston, who said that the most dangerous thing isn't the lack of knowledge, but the illusion of knowledge. Einstein said, I don't think about the future, it'll come soon enough. The number of great quotes from people who said forecasting is a wonderful thing, anybody can do it. There aren't many of those, and I've never seen anybody who proves that out. I end telling you about a friend of mine who I met roughly 50 years ago when I worked in the investment research department at Citibank, and he's a, a sell-side analyst. He works for what we used to call a brokerage firm, and he called me up a few years ago. I was heading out of the office. I, I heard the phone ring. I grabbed the phone. He introduced who it was. I said, great to hear from you. He says, look, I want to tell you something. You have changed my life. I said, what do you mean? He says, I've stopped making forecasts. All I do now is I tell people what I think is going on, and I tell them what I think are the possible implications for the future. But I'm not giving out forecasts for economic growth, inflation, and interest rates, and all those kinds of things. And he says, life is so much easier. I hope people will think about living their lives that way, rather than making and consuming forecasts. Thank you for your questions, Anna. Good as always. I look forward to speaking with you about the next memo. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.